Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Tim Mulehoff, Professor of Communication at Biola University. His research, writing, speaking, and consulting focuses on how to have healthy and productive conversations with others, from the home, to the church, to the university, to the public square. Due to his understanding of communication theory, as well as spending many years earning three degrees in public universities, I can think of no one better to help us understand our topic today. So Tim, welcome to the show. Stan, thank you. It's so great to uh, reconnect with you. Our days at Miami of Ohio, Knoxville, Ohio, it's, it's uh, great to be on your podcast. Well, it's so good to see you again. You know, we've known each other, I was just counting up, for over 30 years now. I know. We both had hair. I know. What a what a concept. <laughs> Tim, I've always appreciated your ability to have winsome conversations. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show to talk about this topic today. Uh, I know you thought a lot about how Christian students can have winsome conversations about their faith in their classes. So how did you get interested in this whole idea of communicating well and communicating in, in winsome ways in the first place? Well, kind of the ending point is I'm now a professor of communication at Biola University in La Mirada, California, and I'm the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project. But this all started, Stan, at like roughly age 13. I radically got converted. We never went to church. I I, I didn't know anything about the gospel. And then I actually became a Christian through Michael Crane's Karate for Christ. Hmm. Uh, I love that, Jiu-Jitsu for Jesus. I think that's awesome. (laughs) And uh, when I went forward to accept Christ, this was in a church. The karate demonstrations were in a church. So I went forward, uh, accepted Jesus. I didn't know that my football coach was in the back watching. He was a deacon of the church. Ah. So when I show up to school, high school, the next day, he hands me a King James version of the Bible. Stan, this thing was like a self-defense weapon. It was huge. And it said, across the front, it said, Holy Bible. So he gives it to me and he said, Mulehoff, you serious about following Jesus? I said, yeah, coach. He said, okay, read John. I had no idea what he was talking about. And um, we'll talk about it. I said, okay, so Stan, I take that Bible, not thinking anything, and walk into my next class with it and put it on my desk. The girl next to me goes, what in the blankety blank is that? And I'm like, it's a Bible. Like, what is your problem? And then I realized it was a problem for a lot of people. So Stan, I started by walking into football practice, holding the Bible and people going, no, what's with you? <laughs> so then I quickly realized, and this is a lesson I have has followed me my entire life is it is easy to get alienated. It's really easy. Like in one conversation, I could have turned the whole football team against me. Yeah. um, But didn't. And we can talk about later why that didn't happen. And we're really missing this in our evangelism, uh, evangelistic conversations. So follow that all the way to Eastern Michigan University. I'm a theater major. Uh, Most of my professors are gay, uh, outspokenly gay. I could have gotten marginalized in a heartbeat as a theater major. Mm-hmm. I'm also with Campus Crusade for Christ as a student leader, and then I go off to grad school, and now I'm in a very postmodern 
uh, high feminist theory university, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So Stan, any moment I could have marginalized myself in like two conversations and I started to notice, well, okay, how can I actually get people to listen to me? R rather than getting marginalized, I actually don't want to just proclaim biblical truth. I want to have conversations. And what does it take to have a good conversation like the book of Proverbs, a word spoken in the right circumstance is like compared to fine jewelry. So that's kind of my background, Stan, is walking into very different situations and asking the question, what, what does it take for people to listen to me and consider my perspective? And that's a question I've explored in my books, my speaking, my writing, and, and I'm intrigued by that question. Well, it's such a timely question for today uh, with so many of the conversations that are pretty uh, you know, antagonistic these days. So I want to get to all that, but I want to start in the classroom. Uh, what do you think a Christian student's priority ought to be when he or she's in class? Is it to be a, just a good student or a Christian witness? Uh, is it possible to be both? So Stan, I'm going to continually flip back and share my history and then the things I kind of learned by error Sure. as we move to forward. Okay, so after I became a Christian, there was a knock on the door and it was, it was a pastor of a very legalist church. Mm. And, and Stan, think about that. Anybody could have knocked on my door. Jehovah Witness. I, I mean, I had no contacts for anything. Right. So I started going to this church and... Uh, where it was, you know, hellfire and brimstone, uh, the lost are are to be shunned in a way, share with them, but shun them, don't be influenced by them. Okay. So I, I walk into Eastern Michigan University and have a class called Bible as Literature. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I'm sitting there. I don't know much about anything, Stan, but, I, but I'm like a freshman. This poor woman, now that I'm a professor, my empathy goes towards the woman. Okay, so she's teaching literary criticism. She makes an opening statement that it wasn't really the Red Sea. It was probably the Reed Sea. It probably was mm -hmm. a marsh mm -hmm. um, and that people walk, maybe it got up to their knees, but it certainly wasn't a sea. Stan, not knowing anything about anything, my hand went right up. It just shot right up. And she goes, <laughs> oh, yes. What's your name? I go, Tim. She goes, OK, Tim, question. She goes, yeah, what you're saying. What you're saying is not biblical. This is not what the Bible teaches. And she goes, okay, Tim, this is uh, Bible as literature. So we're going to take a look at it and not, and not, I don't want to offend your faith, but this is from a literary perspective. Okay. All right. Next comment out of her mouth, Stan, hand goes up again. <laughs> and I go, well, that, that's not what the Bible says. Bible disagrees with that. She goes, uh, young man, can we talk after class? I said, yes. So, so after class, I meet with her. She goes, are you here to learn? And I said, well, not unbiblical stuff. She goes, but are you open at least to my perspective? Having never heard it, are you open to being in my class? And I literally said to her in all my hubris, Stan, no, no, no. Wow. She goes, I think you should drop the class. And I said, you know what? I'm going to drop the class. And I dropped the class. Right? So Stan, now that I'm a professor, right. I, I say to my students, listen, let me get it out there. Yeah. Let me get my thoughts out there. And then we can have a great, let's define terms. I'm going to say some things that are going to be probably provocative, but let me just get it out there. And then let's, let's 
So this is what I say to him. First, listen to understand before you listen to evaluate. Mm. And we get mm. those two switched up all the time. I was there listening to evaluate with that poor woman at Eastern Michigan University. So Stan, I'd have a hard time with a student who that hand goes flying up, say, Dr. Miloff, I disagree with that. I don't think that's right. I'd be okay. Whoa, what's your name? Like, who are right. you? Right. And so we, we have to be careful with a professor and in a classroom, you earn the right to be heard. You really do earn the right to be heard. And I think in the beginning, you are learning about a system of thought, be it postmodernism, be it textual criticism. Your first job, I would say, is to be a student. And then later, that's going to make you a better witness. Mm. It is possible to be both, but not right off the bat. First, you're a student. You're learning. You've got a posture to understand well. And then comes the opportunity, perhaps, to uh, be a voice of uh, alternative view if the views that aren't being that are being presented aren't biblical views, right? What does the Book of Proverbs say? An offended brother is like a fortified city. Mm. So if we offend that professor right out of the gates, then you just fortified their defenses. Mm. And and let me say something else to the parents that are listening and students. If you have a teaching assistant, right? If you if you have um, an adjunct, then you just need to know their confidence is not great. Mm. So so I mean, if this is a PhD student or a master's student, and and is and I did this all throughout my master's and PhD, I was teaching, and so, but I have a speaking experience. Some of these MA students had nothing, and they're thrown into the classroom. So just know that their confidence is shaky. And for you to come at them real quick, of course, they're going to get defensive and it's going to really hurt their feelings. I say it's better to encourage them, show that you're a good student, you're interested in the subject, go to office hours and start with, so if I took all of calm theory, Stan, and whittled it down, start with areas of agreement and move towards disagreement. In the argument culture today, we flip that. Mm. We start with the disagreement because we don't see any agreement whatsoever mm -hmm. when it comes to certain issues. So I'm saying in a classroom, this is a one semester conversation. So take it slow, build credibility, um, and be very careful what you say. I'd be affirming, like what John Gottman says, have a soft startup, not a hard startup to what you're about to say in class. Now, I think office hours are a little bit different. But even there, the professor, you could hurt their feelings right out of the gate if you start with everything you disagree with in that person's class. Talk more about John Gottman's work and how it applies. You talked uh, a bit about, you just mentioned this, uh, he, he notes that the first 30 seconds of a conversation sets the tone for the entire interaction, creating either a soft or hard startup, as you said. Uh, how can students engage others with a soft startup? Yeah. So, man, talk about the argument culture today, Stan. We have lost our minds. It's all harsh startups. Mm -hmm. it's, and I think social media has facilitated this, these harsh startups. Go back to my uh, Bible as literature class. That's a harsh startup saying, hey, what you're sharing is unbiblical. That's a harsh startup. A, a, a better startup would be, hey, I raised my hand. I said, uh, thank you so much for this lecture. Boy, you've given me a lot to think about. A lot of this is new to me, but I do, I do. There's one thing I want to clarify real quick, if that's okay. 
can I clarify what you meant by deconstructionism? I'm trying to take notes. Could you? I'd be like all day, like, oh, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah. By deconstruction, I mean, boom, that to me is a soft startup, not a harsh one where you're going you're gonna, to uh, put that person being defensive right from the get-go. Good. So how would you summarize all this? During class, a professor shares a view that is maybe hostile to the Christian faith, or maybe it's just contrary to biblical truth. How would you summarize a Christian, think that through, and respond? So I would first thing I would ask is, where in the semester did, did the comment come? If it came at the very beginning, I would let it go. Remember what the book of Proverbs says, a wise man overlooks an insult? I would overlook it because your credibility is zero. The class is just, I mean, the semester just started. You're not even to midterms yet. He has no idea if you're taking seriously this class, he or she. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say if that comment is pretty early on, I'm letting it go. And then here's what I always say to my students. If you want to catch my attention, do really well on the midterm. Ah. Crush it. If you crush it, and by the way, I know every student in my class who crushes it and who struggles and who just didn't put any time into it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So if you crush my midterm, my antennas go up, and now you get to ask some pretty complex questions and even challenge me. We'll get to something called the definition of the situation in a minute, which is a rhetorical device I happen to like a lot that we do automatically. But again, I know the students who have come to office hours and and they go, well, Dr. Mulehoff, I really enjoy this class, man. The textbook is blowing my mind and here, and they open the textbook and I'm like, they're actually reading the textbook. That is awesome. (laughs) And they've come to my office hours and I know them. So the definition of the situation will change the more I get to know you Mm -hmm. Uh, because that trust factor is huge. But so Stan, I would say we're in the semester. Too early, it's too early uh, to, to bring up something. You have to earn that credibility with the class and with the professor before you bring up a, a challenge of some kind or push back. Let's say we're after the midterm, you've, you've nailed it, and you are in class and something you think probably should be addressed. How, how do you do that at that point? So I was in a uh, Eastern Michigan University. I was in a philosophy classroom and uh, the professor got up and did the problem of evil. He writes on the board, God is good. God is powerful. God is aware. Evil exists. So what are we going to do? Deny evil? Or do we just say God maybe isn't one of those things? Maybe he's powerful, but he has no idea what's going on. He's just not aware of it. Mm -hmm. So he did the classic uh, problem of evil. Sure. This is like my junior year, maybe even my senior year. And I'm just sitting there going, all right, what should I do? What should I do? Now, I really liked that class. And I really liked him. And I think he knew that because I would ask questions. I'd go to office time. So I raised my hand. But now it's not this. What do you mean? Not just shooting up? Yeah. It's kind of like, okay, I kind of have a question. I don't know if I have a question. I kind of have a question. He goes, oh, Tim, what? All right. I go, well... Yes, the way you have presented it, this is a huge problem, especially for me, a person who does believe in God. And I do want to definitely believe those three things on the left. But I don't, um, maybe I would add something to the, and he goes, oh, be my guest. He literally hands me the dry eraser and the the, uh, pen. 
And he goes, be my guest. And he sits down in the front row. Stan, I get up and I just add the free will defense. I basically say, yeah, God's good, powerful, aware, but he's given us free will. Thus, he's not going to force us to be good because that takes care of our free will. So I kind of did it. He goes, would you add anything? I go, yes, uh, the final is canceled. And he starts to laugh. He laughs so loud. And he goes, nice try, nice try. Um, we'll, we'll talk about humor in a minute, Stan. This is the forgotten rhetorical strategy that we have just lost. We need more G.K. Chestertons today more than ever. But, I, but he knew I liked him. And I had done well uh, on the mid. I didn't crush it because philosophy can be kind of hard. You know that better than most. Uh, but I did well. And he knew I, I respected him. So he, that was, I'll never forget that moment. That was pretty cool. And so he said, no, and he said this, something like, well, well said. Uh, and then he moved on. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to take that as a huge victory um, that he said that. So that's kind of what I mean is put it in the form of a question, not a, not a challenge. Mm -hmm. That first 30 seconds determines the entire tone of the conversation. If you start with sarcasm, if you start with anger, if it's just you're clearly irritated, you are challenging him in front of his students. I'm shutting that down if a student does that. If, if I perceive in my classroom a student is challenging my authority definition of the situation, I'm shutting that baby down because guess what? In my classroom, I win. If this is a challenge, I'm winning the challenge. It's like parenting, right, Stan? Pick your battles, but you pick a battle, you win it. So you raised your hand and engaged that conversation in class and I understand you had the history and the credibility to do so, but when might a student want to wait and go to a professor's office hours and have that conversation more privately? I think both are acceptable. Uh, remember, I said I like this guy. He actually was very funny. And so he, he, he could tell I laughed at his jokes. And I would, that wasn't the first question I asked, by the way. I, I think we're in a little bit of trouble if the first time we raise our hand is a challenge. So I, he knew I liked it. I'd raised my hand. I'd gone to office hours. So I felt like with the class, um, it was okay for me to do it. Now, if, you're, if public speaking isn't your thing, like having a conversation with 30 other people and the professor is not your thing, that's okay. Then I would go to classmates afterwards and just have conversations in the dining commons with them. Like, hey, what did you think of that comment when he did the problem of evil? And then have a great conversation with two or three people over lunch. I think it's totally acceptable to go to the professor and sit down with him and say, hey, I was really interested in that when you did the problem of evil. It's something I've wrestled with. Um, and I've actually wrestled with the very thing you put up on the whiteboard. But here's my thinking. I wanted to get your opinion on it. See, this is totally different than walking in and saying, I got to tell you, I really disagree with how you presented my faith up on that blackboard. And I, I would, uh, I don't think that was fair. Mm -hmm. It's like, woo. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I'm going to have that conversation as a faculty member, but that, but I'm going to swallow before we do it. Right. I'm going to be like, okay, unfair. Wow. Okay. Let's have that conversation rather than saying, boy, you got me thinking. And I want to bounce some ideas off of you and get your opinion. That's totally different than coming in when I think it's hot. Uh, so remember in communication theory, tone is is more important than content 
there's two levels of communication. Your content, which would be, that would be my argument of adding the free will defense. But relational is made up of, does the person perceive you respect them? Second, do you acknowledge their opinion? And third, is there empathy? Hmm. So if those three are lacking, your content does not matter. So tone is and respect is everything when it comes to having a hard conversation. Mm. Is there anything else besides the, the things you've said that would be ways students can cultivate credibility to, to question a professor? Yeah, so let's go back to all the way back to Aristotle when he said, your reputation before you open your mouth is the most important thing about you. Hmm. Your prior reputation. And, and he, bro- he called it ethos, but he broke it down to three areas. One is what he called the method of the dialectic, which is I can do your argument. I can do my argument, of course, but I can do your argument in such a way that you listen to it and you go, okay, thank you. That was, yeah. That, yeah, I, yeah, I might make a couple changes, but man, you, I think you got it. Stan, we've lost the ability to do that today. Even today in the argument culture, we view the method of the dialectic as compromise. If I do your argument and give it justice, I've, I've condoned the argument. Right. And we have got to get away from that. that is, that's killing us in today's argument culture. Second, he said, was um, goodwill. Okay. Like, do I have goodwill towards you? Do, do you? do you perceive that I respect it? We're back to the respect thing. Mm-hmm. Respect, like you, that is incredibly important. And then lastly is virtue. Like virtue is I live out what I say publicly. So, so if he learns, if your professor learns you're a Christian, you better act like it. Like, you know, we speak truth and love here. We don't just speak truth. Uh, even when we're insulted, we um, bless, right? That, so you, if, you're say, if he knows you're a Christian, mm-hmm. he has expectations. Of what the, and they're probably negative expectations, to be quite frankly. So we get a chance to break those expectations. So I'd say to my students, you need to do both sides of this argument. Oh, and let me tell you, Stan, a story that shows how we're, we're really leery to do this. So I'm, I'm a master's student at UNC Chapel Hill, and you teach public speaking. That's just what you teach when you're the new guy, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm teaching public speaking, and um, I say to them, okay, we're, we're not going to do these stupid speeches about how to pack a suitcase or go fly fishing. That will drive me crazy. So I want you to, I mean, you know what I mean? Come on, we're not going to do that. Yep, yep. I said, so you're going to submit to me your greatest conviction. Wow. As a college student, like, what is it? People came up, you can imagine, pro-life, pro-choice, mm-hmm. banning assault weapons, the death penalty, blah, 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 blah. So I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to write about that for one page, and everybody submitted their page. And then I said, now go back and write the other side. Argue the other perspective. Four students stayed afterwards, four. And they said to me, and by the way, I I did not tell them I was a Christian. I I didn't tell them right out of the gates that I was a Christian. They said, we can't do the assignment. I said, what what do you mean you can't do it? I said, well, we're we're Christians. And like my topic is uh, is the resurrection. Well, my whole faith crumbles if the resurrection didn't happen. I looked at him and said, do you really think 
there are no arguments against the resurrection? I said, I'm not asking you to agree with them. I'm asking you to present them. Right. And, and he said, I can't, I don't know if I can do that. I said, well, I admire your chutzpah. You're about to get a zero. You're about to get a zero on your very first assignment. So go do this. You guys can do this. Then you know what happens, Dan? Later, the last week of class, I came out as a Christian. I said, hey, let me just tell you a little bit about where I was coming from this class. And then they got mad at me. Three of them got mad at me like, why did you make me do this? Why did you make me argue against the resurrection? I said, dude, because it's going to strengthen your faith. And it's going to give you it's going to give you credibility. That is not how they viewed it, Stan. It was like that was wrong to make me do that because you know the resurrection is the greatest conviction I have. And I'm like, awesome. I'm seeking to strengthen it, not weaken it. Mm. So, Tim, you mentioned a minute ago the idea of the definition of the situation and how that plays into how questions are perceived. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, this is a rhetorical tool that people use. And the key thing is we do it automatically. We jump into it automatically. So it's basically three questions. One, what are the beliefs I have about myself? Second, what are the beliefs I have about you? And third, what are we trying to do together? So let me give you the illustration I use for my students when I teach this. So I give a test, okay? Um, And now we're going to go over the test in class. What are the beliefs I have about myself? Well, I've been a professor for 17 years. I think I write good tests. I think they're hard, but I think they're fair. I think they're good. That's a belief about myself. You raise your hand and you go, Dr. Muehlhoff, question 13. I didn't like it. Like, I, I kind of think it was both. It was unfair. Que- uh, beliefs I have about you. Okay. Now, third, what are we trying to do together? That all depends on the second question. If I perceive that student is challenging me, then what are we doing together? We're having a contest about my uh, character as a professor that I wrote an unfair question, right? So go to another scenario. Uh, We're doing the test. Now I have a student who I know and like. I think she likes my classes, but she says the exact same wordage. Question 13, I thought was kind of bogus. I think it was unfair. Now, what do I believe about her? She's a good student. This kind of surprises me. She would say that. I like her. I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt. This was a pretty stressful test. Maybe she didn't do as well as she had hoped. We're okay. I'm not getting defensive because she's a good student. She has every right to question an exam question. She just happened to word it in a way that I'd rather not. Yeah. But we're good because I know her. I respect her. I like her. Hmm. So Stan, these things happen automatically. What are the beliefs I have about myself? But what I believe about you will totally determine the definition of the situation. So if, if I don't like you, trust you, believe you're a good student, I don't trust your character, then that's going to determine what we're doing in this moment. And most likely it could provoke a defensive reaction from me because of what I believe about you, that's question number two, what I believe about the other person. Okay, it's helpful. So as a professor, from your perspective, how does that play into how you want students to ask questions or push back uh, against your view in front of the other students? I would say if you're angry about something in class, and it's okay to be angry, 
uh, that's probably not a time to bring it up in class. I, I would cool down a little bit before you did that. And that, and if you're really upset at the professor, I would do that in office hours. I wouldn't do that in front of the class. I wouldn't come hard and fast at the professor in class. I just, I just don't think that's going to work. And you're going to get marginalized by that professor pretty quick. Let me mention a gender thing. Stan, it is ridiculous how our female faculty are treated. It is ridiculous. Like they will come to me sometimes in my office and say, hey, like what would you do if a student did this in class? And I'm like, one, it's never happened. Two, they said what to you? So I think there's a gender dynamic that's happening that female faculty take a lot of guff from a lot of students. They get walked on pretty quick and uh, particularly from male students. So I think we need to take into consideration that this is a female professor. I, th I think you need to understand that that woman is pretty used to being disrespected. So again, all that information plays into a word spoken in the right circumstance. I mean, you need to understand, take a reading of the room. And, I, and, and this is the empathy part, remember in that relational level? I wanna empathize with her. Well, in that Proverbs uh, 2511, you mentioned the word spoken in the right circumstances, like an artist creating fine jewelry is such a great mm. mental picture. Uh, what are some other ways students can know if the, the circumstances are right for them to offer their opinion in class or, or whether it should be during office hours or neither? So I would say, have you had the professor before? Okay. So this isn't a one-off. You've had a couple classes. I think you have more credibility. Well, I should say this. If you've done well, listen, if, if you're not doing the work, if you're not showing up to class, well, then you don't, I, I would say to that student, do not raise your hand. Mm -hmm. You have not earned the right to speak up in class, to challenge. I mean, you can always ask a question, of course, always, whatever. But if you're going to really engage a professor, and you, you're not showing up, and you're not doing the work, then I say, brother, save your breath. It's going nowhere because Aristotle, you, have an, you don't have ethos. You do not have credibility. And as Christians, sometimes we want credibility without doing the really hard work to get the credibility. Yeah. Um, and we got to be good students. I think that's the, you're in college. Now, if I was talking to tradesmen right now, I would say the exact same thing. Be a good tradesman sure. and your foreman is going to notice, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've written about communication climates a few places. That's the idea here, right? How that helps you assess the timing and circumstances to, to bring things up in. Yeah. So if you uh, take a look at an advertisement for a fireworks display, uh, notice what's at the very bottom of the advertisement. It says weather permitting. Right, because if it's a thunderstorm, we're not doing fireworks. So, calm theory is predicated on this idea of communication climates. Just like the climate outside can dictate what we can do. Uh, here, we get wildfires, so there's time the air quality is just not strong enough for you to go out and run, and so you you can't work against the climate. It's just not healthy. So, basically, a communication climate is made up of four different areas. One is the level of trust between two people. Do I trust you? And if I don't, man, that, that's a compromised communication climate. Second, acknowledgement. I don't have to agree with your perspective, but do I acknowledge the weight of it? 
the seriousness of it. Third would be expectations. Like what expectations do I have of professor and what does that professor have of me? And are we meeting these expectations? And then last is commitment. What kind of commitment do we have to each other? Because if that commitment isn't firm, then you get the idea that no conversation is safe. So we, we have to watch how much we get upset about the cancel culture. Because in my estimation, Stan, we perfected it, mm. right? Hey, Disneyland, you're going to give, you're going to give uh, gay spousal rights to your employees. Guess what? We're not going to Disneyland anymore. Mm. Um, this school doesn't change what you're going to do. Guess what? We're homeschooling. Uh, we don't like the speaker anymore. You walked away from the faith, right? You, you now deny the faith. Guess what? You're never coming on this Christian campus ever again because you walked away from the faith rather than engaging them and asking like, okay, what happened? We are the cancel culture Christians. Mm. And that was me in that Bible is literature class is I'm going to drop this class. I was like, you sh- then you should, you should drop this class, right? That commitment part is huge to a communication climate. And I would say the trust part is huge. And the, I mean, they're all important. So that communication climate, if it's not stable, then I don't think you're raising your hand in a class. And I would say improve the climate. No climate's going to be perfect, but improve the climate, and then you can start to say some things. It's really helpful. We will return to the show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this College Faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to College Faith. Well, I want you to take all of these things you've shared that you've studied and you've learned and reflect back for me on your time as a student at UNC Chapel Hill. You had seven years there as a graduate student mm-hmm. in a program which you mentioned was very challenging. It was immersed in feminist theology and postmodern thought. What were things that you did right that maybe are in line with some of the things you're, <laughs> you're advocating now? <laughs> and what would you change if you had to go back and do it all over again? Well, let me, let me make an interesting comment, Stan. I think my most productive times of evangelism were in high school. Mm. Why? Because I was a wrestler and a football player. And when you're slugging it out with people on the football field and you're trying to win a game and you're doing two-a-days in August and everybody's dying and everybody wants to quit, mm-hmm. you earn the right to say some things. Now, going to Eastern Michigan University, and I think the most productive time I had was I was on the speech team. Again, we're trying to win a national championship. 
all of us are taking time away from school and studying because we want to win a national championship. Guess what? C.S. Lewis said, friends look in the same direction. Then we get to UNC Chapel Hill, and you better believe all PhD students could be really selfish. And uh, this is all about my getting published, my getting my degree, me, 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 me. But Stan, that's when Maureen and I made decisions to go to other people's presentations. And um, I remember one woman we had gave a performance uh, of lesbian literature. And Maureen and I made the decision to go because we're there to support each other. And she was, she was like, hey, afterwards, I'll never forget what she said, Stan. She said something like, I know that some of that must have been really hard for you and Noreen to hear. Because I was an outspoken Christian. She said, parts of that, I imagine, were really hard for you to hear. Uh, but I, will, I am so thankful you came. And it was hard to hear. Oh, my gosh, Dan, we were <laughs> in the sure. second row. And I'm like, oh, oh, my gosh. Wow. But you know what I mean? Instead of getting offended and instead of saying, I will not go to that, it communicated to her, guess what? There's something bigger here. I mean, this was my PhD cohort, right? Mm -hmm. you, you bleed together. And you celebrate with each other. And so for me, it was, and I'm not saying for everybody, and maybe some people going to hear that kind of stuff would have been really bad. And you have to think about all that. But for me and Noreen, here was a chance for us to break a stereotype and go and be supportive because I want them to be supportive of me. I want, I want to be heard, and that's going to require me to do the listening first to earn that right. Sure. We call that the rule of reciprocation. Generally speaking, I treat you the way you treat me. Mm. And again, I think this is neighbor love. So let me say, I think this is Jesus's table fellowship. Okay. Where he, and we explore this in a book called Winsome Persuasion that I wrote with my co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project. When you look at Jesus's table fellowship, they were notorious sinners. And many of these dinners were outside. So you're walking past Jesus, and he's with notorious sinners having fellowship. Daryl Bach talks about it in a great book called Contagious Holiness. So somehow Jesus was able to be there and not condone sin. And I think we need to wrestle with that a lot more if we're going to be in secular universities. That's very wise. Let me push back a little bit, though. Uh, your experiences... Uh, as a graduate student, or what, 15 years ago, maybe more? Gosh, more, because I've been at Biola for 17 years. Okay, okay, maybe 20 years. Uh, the environment arguably has become much more hostile and much more canceling of alternative views. How much of that still applies, and how much of that was for a time that's now passed? I think all of it applies. Because here's what, I would, here's what I would say to parents and students heading off to a secular university. Paul says, when your enemy, and, and a lot of Greek scholars say that should really be translated, not enemy, but those who hate you. Hmm. When those who hate you are hungry, thirsty, feed them. I say now, when the argument culture is so heightened, we do neighbor love more than ever. We, we are the neighbors. We come in and, and look to support your, you as a person as much as possible. 
and love you and respect you. Uh, and that perhaps locally will change the communication. I, like it's above my pay grade, Stan, to change the country. But can I make a difference in the department I'm part of at a secular university or Brea, where I live in California? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I can make a difference locally because you earn that kind of respect. Uh, and it takes time. I mean, the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, the church at Ephesus, these were long projects where they, they garnered respect. Reminds me of Thomas Aquinas' reflection on the appropriate gratitude and charity we ought to have for those who sought truth. And he said, we must love them both, those whose opinions we share and those whose opinions we don't share. Uh, for both have labored in the search of truth and both have helped us in finding it. So uh, say a little more about how that observation that Aquinas made can guide us in approaching uh, even radically anti-Christian ideas yeah. in people like Foucault and Nietzsche and, and others. So Stan, I'm teaching this class I told you about engaging diverse perspectives. Mm -hmm. Well, because I'm me, my wife just shakes her head. She's always like, honey, why, why, why? <laughs> so I'm using critical race theory as a test case. Like they're learning a method. We call it the Winston Conviction Method of engaging perspectives. But then I said, let's take a topic that is tearing this country apart. It's tearing communities apart. And that is critical race theory. I had three students come up to me and they said, I almost dropped the class because I saw the syllabus that we had to read. Uh, it's called Critical Race Theory and Introduction by the two of the key players for CRT. And I almost dropped the class. I'm like, but how much do you know about critical race theory? Well, not much, but I know it's uh, dangerous and makes everybody, all white people are the oppressor. And I said, okay, well, stay in the class because we're going to engage it. So here's what I say to people. It is fine to disagree with critical race theory, postmodernism, Foucault, but first listen to understand and then be able to articulate the good and the bad about critical race theory. And again, I, I just wrote a book on common grace called Eyes to See, uh, Discovering God's Common Grace in an Unsettled World. Feel free to buy 100 copies for Christmas for your <laughs> loved ones. Um, but if common grace is true, then what Augustine said is true. All truth meets at the top. So if it's true, it's God's truth. Define common grace for our listeners. Okay. Common grace is God's blessings that he gives indiscriminately to everyone. So we could think the intellectual realm. We have the ability to think logically. We have the ability to uncover the law of non-contradiction that two opposing truth claims both can't be right. Mm -hmm. uh, medical discoveries, think about trying to get through COVID without N95 masks, respirators. Well, the human race would not exist without penicillin, right? I mean, so all of the, and we have the arts that can get us to think about truth in different ways. We have ideas of beauty. God gave us all of these good gifts. So the book of Proverbs says, I'm sorry, the book of Ecclesiastes, you can live life below the sun or above the sun. Above the sun, we recognize God is real, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. But under the sun, they don't recognize that. And the book of Ecclesiastes is mostly focusing on knowledge below the sun. So I say, can you learn from critical race theory? 
and learn from postmodernism? Absolutely. But I also fully expect them to get things wrong because they're below the sun. But still, we can learn from these individuals. And that's what Aquinas is getting at. So think about critical race theorists who spent their entire lives studying race. Is there nothing we can learn from these individuals? And for sure, we're going to reject something. But what bothers me, Stan, is the rejection from the get-go. Three students who are going to drop the class because they saw one book on critical race theorists. We got to be, we, we have to be more diligent than that. We have to, and again, this is a 400 level class. This is the highest class we have at my university. This is not 100 level for freshmen, 200 level for sophomores. This is the best of the best. And they ought to be ready to tackle these hard issues or what in the world are we doing? Right. Can I just give some resources? Oh, that'd be great. The Winsome Conviction Project is a five-year project graciously funded by donors who care about how Christians talk to non-Christians and how we talk to each other. Mm. So if you go to winsomeconviction.com, we have a ton of resources. We have a podcast, we have articles, we have a devotional uh, if you're going to go into a hard conversation, you go through a five-day devotional preparing your heart to have this hard conversation. Mm. And then we have a podcast called the Winsome Conviction Podcast where we try to model what we're talking about. So we talked to we talked to one of the top feminist theorists in the world to show where we agree, disagree, but let's have a charitable conversation. So just go to that. It's part of Biola University, the Biblical Institute of Los Angeles. We've been around 108 years. And this is just a great place to check in and get some resources because these are these are scary things sending our kids off to secular universities. And it's going to take a lot of prayer, a lot of training, a lot of input. And we just hope the Winsome Conviction Project would do that. Yeah. Well, I've listened to a few of the podcasts and they're great. So I really appreciate that, oh, yeah. that work. Uh, we've talked a lot about how students can engage their professors in class and in the, the meetings they might have in their offices. Well, let's talk about email. It's another oh. uh, medium of communication. So what are some of, of the do's and don'ts of interacting with, with faculty or, or fellow students uh, around these type of issues via email? So we there's a, a concept called disinhibition, okay. which means I am shielded from the impact of my communication. Mm. Like, like right now, you and I are face-to-face. -face. Now, we're, we're doing it Zoom, but if I made fun of you or was snarky towards you, I at least have to deal with the immediate effect of your being hurt or angry. Now, imagine you and I in Starbucks, the ante goes up even higher because we're live and there's people listening. Right. But if we finish this podcast, Stan, and for some reason, something you said just bothered me. I sit down in the moment, I'm bothered. So in an email, I'm letting it rip. Mm. Boom, 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 all caps. Boom, 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 boom. And I hit send. Well, that's disinhibition. Why? Because I didn't, I don't need to, see, I, who knows if you're ever going to read it. And if you read it, I don't need to see what my words have done. James says, I want you to imagine your words are like a spark that can turn a whole place into a wildfire. Mm. In California, we take those seriously. We have wildfires everywhere. So be very careful about disinhibition. And so remember what Seneca said, when angry count to 10, when really angry count to 100. 
So what we need to do is let that email sit. And then Stan, you know my wife, Noreen. There are times I let Noreen read the email and she's like, are you trying to get fired? It's like, is that, is, <laughs> what is the purpose? And I'm like, so that to me, electronic communication gets us in trouble. Twitter, what I don't like about Twitter is now that's in real time. Mm-hmm. Like, like I'm, I'm sitting there going, oh, I can't believe, what? Boom, 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 boom. And to me, that's dangerous. And you know, a lot of people have been sunk by their Twitter accounts. Oh, yeah. Have been uh, sunk by Facebook posts and have been sunk by email. So we need to be very careful, have forethought. So I would say email is becoming the number one way that students interact with faculty. I remember one of our faculty members, she's phenomenal, just corrects people gently. Like, hey, don't just call me by my last name. It is doctor. Yeah. Don't just say, hey, yeah. And say, no, no, it's Dr. Mulehoff. It's like like one guy, Stan, when I was teaching a class at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, he raised his hand. He said, uh, hey, dude. And I said, hey, it's Dr. Dude. Okay. <laughs> so it, it, got la- it got a laugh. But, but the point was made. He later emailed me and said, hey, I'm really sorry. I did not mean to be disrespectful. And I said, you know what? You're fine. But I do prefer Dr. Mulehoff. So email is becoming much more of a way to communicate with your professor. So be very careful when you're annoyed and and letting it rip on an email and hit and send. Be very careful about that. Sure. Well, and it does seem to me also the email is best for shorter, more uh, information-based conversations. It's not the place to engage a professor on a longer back and forth on a a view they might hold that you think is... uh, is worth challenging. And what I see is that they just can't let it go. So what I see is they send me an email asking a question. I respond. They send back another response because my answer wasn't good enough. Mm. I may respond one more time and then they send another one. And I'm like, yeah, we're not doing, I'm not doing this. Mm -hmm. So uh, set up a, set up office hours. This is an office hour conversation, but then they come back with, yeah, but I just want to make sure. And it's like, guys, I'm not doing this. I'm not replying. After a certain time, I'm not replying anymore. Mm-hmm. I've already asked them to set up office hours. So Stan, I think you're right. Uh, that disinhibition is for real when you just want to get something off your chest. And I'm and so write my professor.com. Mm-hmm. Right. That is the place to go to let it rip, right? And it had, this goes back to the empathy part. It has reduced some of my friends to tears, right? Reading some of these responses. I'm sure. Have reduced them to tears. And there's no way to respond. Great. And be careful of chat rooms. We have something at Biola called Biola T. It's created by a student. And it's where students go to let it rip. It's where they go that they feel like I don't have to follow biblical prohibitions. I can be angry, I can call people names, I can whatever. And I don't think we ever are out from under biblical prohibitions of speaking truth and love and gentleness and all that kind of stuff. Right, right. Well, I want to circle back to something you said very early in the conversation. You said we come back to, and that is the role of humor in these type of conversations. Yep. Uh, So I wrote an essay on Christian Scholars Review about G.K. Chesterton. And we need more Chesterton. So uh, for your listeners, Chesterton was this robust, he was about 320 pounds. 
He was a towering intellect, mm -hmm. but he never, Stan, he never lost his sense of humor and his ability to laugh at himself. Mm. Uh, he would have dinner parties where he would dress up as a donkey. <laughs> so can you imagine C.S. Lewis, uh, Aquinas, dressed up as a donkey, but he would invite non-Christian friends. He debated Rudyard Kipling, H.G. Wells, uh, all these towering humanists. And when they were done, they would go to the pub and, and have a drink and, and basically say, oh, G.K. Chesterton, when you said this, that was crazy. And he goes, well, H.G. Wells, when you said this, that was crazy. And they'd be like, I'll drink to that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so let me, let me give you an example. I'm in a high-level feminist seminar at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm the only guy in the seminar, and, and I'm the only Christian. There's only like seven of us. We would send each other messages all the time, okay? So one woman sent out a joke, and the joke was, how do you know Jesus was a woman? Because after he died, he still had to get up to serve people. Okay? So I, I, I read it. Well, then she sends me a private email that says, hey, Tim, I'm so sorry, man. I, I know you're religious. I didn't mean to offend you. Um, I didn't even think. I forgot you were on the... I said, are you kidding me? My wife and I are still laughing about that, right? We are known as deadly serious people who can never laugh at ourselves mm. or our belief system. Mm. And I think we've got to find a way of showing people, guys, it's okay. I'm not fragile. We can joke and talk and laugh. And Chesterton was brilliant in his ability to keep the humor part mm. because today, what humor is there? Unless it's sarcastic attacking humor of Saturday Night Live. Right. But, but today, let's, let's laugh and enjoy. So we, we got to find a way of relaxing a little bit. Mm -hmm. And maybe parents listening are like, no, we can't relax about these deadly serious issues. And I agree they're serious, but Chesterton had a way of doing it that he could keep it both serious, but loosen the steam a little bit by keeping his sense of humor. Well, and you've always been so good at that as well. And, and that's a great example from uh, your time there at UNC. Any other things do you think you really did well or that where you blew it even? Oh, <laughs> um, things I did well. I did keep the humor, Stan. I was able to keep the humor. Not surprised. One of my friends is one of the top feminist theorists in the world. And she didn't know me. I was assigned as a teaching assistant. There were seven of us because it was a 200 person class. Mm -hmm. And she holds up a picture in front of this class. And it's a picture of a male model in white swim trunks. And Stan, this guy's cut. And she holds up in front of 200 students and said, give me feedback. Like, what do you see when you look at this? This is a class on gender. Okay. okay. What do you see? Well, it's crickets. It's like the first week, nobody's saying anything. And it's right. you can see she's sweating it like that. Come on, guys. So I raise my hand. She looks at me kind of oddly, like, Tim? I said, Well, I'm frustrated. She goes, You're frustrated? I said, Yes. I told them I wanted to wear the white swim trunks. <laughs> 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 and she looked at me just for a second, like, Are you insane? And Stan, she burst out laughing. And to this day, we've now been friends going on 25 years. 
And she goes, every once in a while, she goes, do you still remember that those darn spring trunks? And I'm like, I do. So I, I think the humor thing worked. Uh, another postmodern professor, brilliant. I would always comment on her books. I'd say, Dr. Madison, your books are keeping me up at night. Oh my gosh, I am, you are blowing my categories. And I wasn't BSing, Stan. She wrote some amazingly unsettling books. So when, when I challenged her on something once in front of students, did it very respectfully, uh, she allowed it. And we had, a, we had an amazing give and take in front of students where I was pushing hard on her relativism. Things I did bad, initially, I was too busy. I, I, I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. I've got a wife and small kids. And I was literally bopping in and out. I'd be there when I had to be there. Uh, and I'll never forget, Stan, I kept getting invited to this study group of PhD students, and I, I never made it, ever. And one, I was feeling insecure because this stuff was hard. And I'm thinking, am I not smart enough to do a PhD? I mean, my gosh. So one day I, I forgot something. I'm on campus. I walk into the comm building, and they're all sitting there having lunch, the study group. And one student says, hey, we got an extra lunch. And I was all ready to say, no, I got to get, and I said, no, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. Sat down and everybody is saying they don't feel like they're smart enough to be in the program, everybody. And I said, guys, this is the most encouraging thing I have heard because I thought it was just me. One student goes, well, to be honest, it, it is mostly you, Tim. You don't belong. <laughs> and I'm like, right. But Stan, that brought down walls. Yeah. And that moment of connection. So I, I started making those study yeah. times. I talked to my wife. I said, honey, I, I really feel like, one, I'm going to benefit from it because that really helped my confidence. And second, I think this is a real opportunity to witness. And Rory was like, yeah, let's make time for that. Mm -hmm. But I, I think I was so busy with my agenda. I'm popping in and out of things and they don't really know me. Right. And I thought, boy, then how can I be a witness? I don't have any credibility. Right. That's good. The way that would relate to the undergrad, I think, is at least two ways. One is the study groups that form, yes. being involved in those, but also being present with professors in office hours, it seems. And socials. Ah. Like, like if your philosophy department has a social Faculty are putting this together and nobody comes. Right. And faculty are like, well, this is so disappointing because I heard the PR department had a killer party and we had this crappy party, <laughs> right? So yeah, I would go to those things. they like, hey, you know, we, we had a crappy party, but Stan showed up. And I, I'm really appreciative Stan showed up. He made time to come or even come early and help set up. And just remember your professors are, are people who are overwhelmed underpaid. They have kids. They've got a marriage. They're trying to get tenure. They're, it's a middle of a pandemic and everybody's about losing their minds during this pandemic. So to minister, to be kind and gracious, that's, maybe that's my closing thought, Stan, is just remember good etiquette. Mm. Be respectful, show up on time, mm. uh, acts mm -hmm. of kindness, uh, positive words. The book of Proverbs is compared to honey for the soul. Everybody likes a compliment, man. Everybody does. And just realize your faculty and students have complicated, hard lives. And when you breathe a fresh comment or life and death is in the power of the tongue, 
we know from research, psychology and comp theory, receiving a compliment is like receiving a large sum of cash. Man, just know that everybody needs an encouragement and a pat on the back, and you're doing a great job, uh, especially during a pandemic. Good word. Well, as we do draw to a close, anything else that you'd want to make sure we touch on? Let me just say this. So I loved my time at Eastern Michigan University. I loved it. I was part of Campus Crusade for Christ. I think it's great to have that foundation. I loved, for the most part, loved my professors, loved my classes. Uh, it was pretty wonky. It got pretty wonky at times, like, oh, my <laughs> gosh, I'm the most conservative person. But And I love my master's and PhD program. These are smart people, and they're good people. They do care about their students. So don't think heading into these secular universities, it's like, I just got to survive for four years. It can be a place of rich fellowship and friendship, both with Christians and non-Christians. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. Where can listeners go to get more? You've mentioned a few of your books. I'm going to make sure those are all in the show notes, but where else would you want to point listeners? Well, I would just say winsomeconviction.com. Um, <clears throat> you can find my books on InterVarsity Press website or Amazon podcasts, wherever podcasts are found. You can listen to the Winsome Conviction podcast. If you want to see me in action, uh, we live in the age of YouTube. So if you type in Tim Yohoff, a, I'm horrified what comes up, <laughs> some of it. But a lot of my lectures, a lot of my talks, sermons, chapels are all on YouTube. How to have a difficult conversation, uh, the argument culture. These are all topics I try to talk about regularly. What's the best one people should go to listen to or to watch? How to have a difficult conversation. Just type in Biola Chapel and just type in Mulehoff how to have a difficult conversation. I think that really does summarize what we're trying to get at. Great. Yeah. Great. I'll link right to that in the show notes. Great. Well, Tim, this has been fantastic. It's just always good to talk with you and to just hear you wax eloquent on some of these issues you thought a lot about. Uh, it's just been a real, real blessing to me. I think it will be to our listeners as well. Thanks. Well, love what you're doing. I think it's incredibly important. Appreciate it, brother. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash college faith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond. <laughs>